0: Everyone, it's Thomas. welcome to is This Democracy. This week we are talking about the history of American conservatism. We are diving deep into the past and the present of the right, the far right, and how Trumpism's rise fits into that broader story. If there's one underlying assumption that defines this podcast, certainly defines the work Lily and I do, it is that the central problem American democracy faces is the anti-democratic radicalization of the right. In today's episode, we talk about when, how, and why that actually happened. We reflect on the questions that really go to the core of what we are doing here. I'm so happy I had the chance to discuss these issues with Seth Kotlar. If you listen to this pod, there is a very good chance that you know who Seth is. He's one of the most insightful commentators on the history of conservatism and on American politics in general. And for several years now, he has shared that insight with a big audience via his public facing work. Seth Kotler is a professor of history at Willamette University in Salem, Oregon. He is by training a specialist on the history of the early American Republic, the years between the American Revolution and the Civil War. His first book was Tom Paine's America, The Rise and Fall of Transatlantic Radicalism in the Early Republic. And in it, he examined the political culture of that era, specifically ideas of democracy. And you'll hear him talk about how that's really the path that led him to focusing on the more recent past and the present of the American right, the way conservatives talk and think about democracy, and very frequently do so by referencing the early American period, a kind of bizarro version of the very history for which Seth is a specialist. Now, the bulk of this episode focuses on Seth's current project. He is writing a book about Walter Huss. Who? Exactly. Walter Huss is a rather obscure figure. But you'll hear in our conversation that this story is fascinating and immensely significant. Walter Huss was a leading right-wing activist in Oregon from the late 1950s all the way through the early 2000s, a far-right activist with ties to the neo-Nazi scene and domestic terrorists. And in the late 70s, this guy, Walter Huss, managed to take over as chair of the Oregon GOP, the Oregon Republican Party, which had until that point really stood out for its moderate republicanism. The story of Huss we discuss here allows us to tackle so many crucial issues. It's a window into that far-right world since the 50s, the toxic ideological landscape of anti-Semitism, anti-communism, and racism, the white Christian nationalist vision of and for America, it allows insight into the far-right media landscape of that era, which provided an absolutely crucial infrastructure and and sustained that far-right world and its networks. It's also served as as a fertile ground for the kind of political culture that has come to take over the Republican Party. We discussed the question of how someone like Huss was able to help push the moderate Oregon GOP to the right, the role and failure of moderate elites, the Republican establishment, to prevent this from happening, to stop this kind of radical insurgency. And that, of course, leads us to reflect on the question of how much of this is not just an Oregon story, but an American story, the story of the radicalization of the Republican Party, and that sends a prehistory of Trump's rise. We discuss whether or not there is a direct path from Walter Huss to Donald Trump, which puts us right in the middle of that big question of how to interpret Trump and Trumpism, how to situate it in the longer-term history of conservatism and the Republican Party as an aberration and departure, or more plausibly, as in many ways in line with certain long-standing tendencies and impulses. That's not at all just a question for historians, for academics. It's it's fundamentally about what is this Trumpism? Where does it come from? What's the right way to understand it, tackle it, hopefully defeat it? And that very much has direct political and policy implications. We went long with this episode, and that's simply because we had so much interesting stuff to get to, and also because it is such a pleasure to talk about all of this with Seth. I'm, I'm really certain that you will enjoy this conversation. Seth really is among the handful of people from whom I have learned the most over the past few years. If you are interested in understanding the past and present of the American right, whatever is going on in American conservatism, you should subscribe to his new Substack newsletter. It's called Rightlandia, and it's fantastic. And you should seek out Seth's work. Follow him on social media where he is at Seth Kotler. You will be grateful for all he has to offer. All right, before we get into it, just a few housekeeping notes. Um, if you haven't yet, please do subscribe on the podcast player of your choice. If you want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave us a rating or a review I say it every week because it's important. They really help us a lot. They really help the podcast find an audience. If you have any feedback, please email us at isthisdemocracypod at gmail.com. Thanks as always to our wonderful producer, Connor Lynch, who is making all this good stuff happen. And thanks to you for taking the time to listen. Here it is, my conversation with Seth Gottler. Seth Gottler, welcome to Is This Democracy? Well, Thanks for having me. So we will talk about origin stories today a lot. The origin story of the kind of, I don't know what to call it, grassroots right-wing populism slash extremism that has come to dominate the right, perhaps, or the origin story of Trumpism, maybe. But I want to actually start with your origin story. You are a historian, and crucially, by training, a historian of early America, the early American Republic. A specialist on, broadly speaking, the years between maybe the American Revolution and the Civil War, something like this. How did you, with that professional profile, come to focus on the right in the very recent past, on the history of modern conservatism? I might also frame this as, why would you do this to yourself, Seth? <laughs>
1: uh, many of my friends ask me the same thing. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so here's the origin story. So I. I was mostly interested as a historian of the the American revolutionary era in the history of political ideas and political culture, especially around the question of democracy uh, in the late 18th and early 19th century. Um, I wrote an article on uh, how the word democracy came to be used um, in the 1790s specifically um, as a way to identify one as a member of a political... Movement that understood itself as being kind of internationalist and egalitarian and um, pro democratic in a variety of ways. Uh, and so um, we can see this struggle over and conversation about what does it mean to call America democracy and what does that entail in the founding era. Um, And so that was my first book project, which was basically about Thomas Paine and the Americans who loved him in the 1790s. Uh, And Thomas Paine is off in France at this time, writing uh, pamphlets in favor of the French Revolution. Um, And there was a significant number of Americans in the 1790s who uh, read his work, followed him, and identified themselves as, uh, like him, supporters of of the French Revolution. I should emphasize in the earlier stages, most of these folks kind of got off the train once it got to the whole guillotine part. Um, So, and it just so happened that in the 1990s, before I'd even finished uh, my dissertation, I was asked to review some kind of strange right-wing books about the founding era. Uh Uh, And I I remember reading them thinking like, where is this coming from? They were like neo-confederate interpretations of the political theory of the founding era. And they just seemed so weird. You know, they would use, like in the introduction, they used phrases like, uh, as we know during Lincoln's tyrannical reign as president, (laughs) And I was like, who is this book for? Like, like, what is happening here? Um, And now I look back in hindsight and I can see how this, this was part of this kind of far right subculture. Anyway, a lot of conservatives, throughout American history, but especially in the last 30, 40 years, have been obsessed with the founding, right? And so they take a particular claim on the ideas of that founding era. um, And they use it to justify their politics, which frequently is quite counter-democratic or anti-democratic and anti-egalitarian. And as someone who's read that material, that primary source material, you know, I can see where they're getting that from, but also this tradition, this founding era, was incredibly complicated and multivocal and, and multivalent, and that's the part that tends to drop out. So, around the Tea Party era, I would obsessively watch Glenn Beck's uh, shows, in which, oh, in which he would he would explain to the audience how they've been taught American history all wrong, and now he's going to tell them the truth yeah. right yeah. about American history. Yeah. I remember watching it, just kind of pulling my hair out. Like, what is happening? What is he talking about? And my response at the time was like, "Well, okay, maybe you can, maybe you can make that case, but like, wouldn't it be good, Glenn Beck, to bring someone else on who actually like knows this material better to give a different perspective?" And I was so naive, right? So incredibly naive. Um, and so because of. All of that background of looking at how the founding era was being appropriated by contemporary conservatives, I decided to teach a course on the history of American conservatism. Oh, okay. In the Tea Party era. Um, and the mission of the course was to help our largely liberal student body um, understand this competing political tradition, not as a, a deficit of ideas, not as people who were sort of particularly evil or ignorant, but to understand it as a meaningful political tradition.
0: I am so surprised, Safai. This this doesn't sound right to me because I was just told last week in the New York Times that um, all these liberal professors, they just don't teach the uh, conservative intellectual tradition anymore. It's shocking to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're telling me that actually, even though you are, broadly speaking, a, a liberal professor at a liberal institution, you are actually teaching uh, conservative intellectual tradition.
1: What can I say? I've just always been a maverick like that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it is interesting though, right? That in a way, the, the most recent iteration of this radicalization has been sort of paralleled by a rise of historians as public intellectuals, probably to a, a somewhat unprecedented degree. And and one of the reasons is that the right is obsessed with American history. So history is just out there. It It, it has, like historical debate has moved to The very core of the political discussion. And so this stuff is talked about. And so, well, you know, you get involved, right? Right.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, I can't tell you how many times. I mean, one of my first experiences as a graduate student was in 1993 or four. I was on an airplane and I was reading a book called The Minutemen and Their World by Robert Gross, which is a kind of classic work on the American Revolution. And, uh, there was a guy sitting next to me on the plane who, you know, was a kind of middle-aged kind of conservative looking white guy, but I didn't make any assumptions about who he was or what he thought, but he was kind of eyeing me. And then at one point he kind of looked at me and he said, that's not one of those revisionist history books, is it? <laughs> and I thought, well, I, what, what does that mean? Um, but this like weird hostility and you know, I'm a cis straight white guy, I don't look particularly, you know, necessarily like a threatening different person to someone who comes from that point of view, from that place, but he just eyed me and he had sussed me out, you know, as one of these, you know, terrible liberal revisionists who was destroying American history. And th- the context, of course, was the the history wars of the early 1990s, yes. which are much a precursor to the history wars that we're living through now. Yeah, yeah. Um, And it was, you know, it was Lynn Cheney uh, who was leading those history wars. Liz Cheney's mom. Yeah, Liz Cheney's mother. And there was this massive dust up around, you know, all the terrible things that professional historians were doing to our understanding of American history by including women, too many black people, et cetera. Um, So what's happening in Florida now and all of the dust up around the 1619 Project uh, you know, f- for those of us, I-, I was just beginning graduate school in the midst of that first era of of the history wars in the early '90s, and it just feels like you know the same. It's like Groundhog Day.
0: It, that happens a lot, actually. That a much of the currents of culture war debates, broadly speaking, are just astonishingly ahistorical, right? Mm-hmm. To the point where it's the same with the whole cancel culture thing, and if if you ever. Like even spend ten minutes on looking at the political correctness uh, a panic in, in the early nineties. You're thinking, wait a minute, we we've we've been here before. Um, there is an assumption out there. Maybe assumption is not the right word. It, there are forces out there who want everyone to believe that all those liberal professors have mm-hmm. never known anything but. They are sort of lefty urban bubbles, which is why they, meaning we, you and I, people like us, right, uh, have no idea what they are actually talking about. They have no insight into real America. So all you're ever going to get from people like us, therefore, is some sort of aloof, detached commentary from the ivory tower. Mm-hmm. You, however, are actually a good example for why that is complete nonsense, because you actually have not spent your entire life in lefty elitist urban bubbles. If, if you don't mind, I mean, I'd love to hear you talk just a little bit about the type of community, socioeconomic, cultural environment in which you grew up, which is not not some urban lefty hippie bubble.
1: (laughs) Right. So I I grew up in a small town in central Pennsylvania, about 80 miles east of Pittsburgh that was in coal country. Um, And uh, my parents were small business owners, ran a clothing store that my great-grandfather had started in the 1920s. And so I spent my youth um, doing the bookkeeping and sweeping the floors and washing the windows and doing inventory and all that kind of thing, as one does in a small business. Both of my grandfathers were Republicans. One was a kind of more Eisenhower flavored, the other was more Goldwater flavored. Um, And uh, and, yeah, so I grew up in a place that that voted Democratic in the 1980s because it was a union area, but it was a very socially conservative uh, part of the country. So it's now about 70, 30, or like 72, 28 Trump now, um, the way that area votes. Um, But back in the 80s, uh, my congressman was Jack Murtha, who was a conservative Democrat, socially conservative Democrat. Um, And then I, I went off to college, I went to Brown, which felt like a very different world <laughs> but my professor there at brown who taught me early american history was gordon wood who you know well known now as a critic of the 1619 project
0: again not exactly a crazy lefty hippie no i don't think anyone would ever
1: mistake <laughs> for that um uh, though interestingly ron DeSantis in his first book uh wrote about gordon wood and he referred to them as referred to gordon wood as a well-known progressive historian which oh, i think okay to be quite uh, amusing. Um, but anyway, uh, uh, yeah, so I, so in that sense, you know, my training as a historian and my background, uh, before I went off to college was living in what today would be kind of, you know, very, very red, uh, parts, uh, of the country. And, um, yeah, and I still have many connections and friends and so on, uh, to reflect.
0: And you do sometimes do these, um, interesting you dive into Facebook pages from people you basically knew back in was a high school or or whatever. And it's both illuminating and and, and terrifying because you often, I mean, what you sort of unearthed there was often that these people who you remembered as uh, certainly not sort of lefty, whatever, but normal, you know, like reasonable people, you could have a, like just a normal conversation with whatever moved to a, a rather different, rather conspiratorial sort of right-wing place. Is, is that a fair way to, to describe that?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and the, you know, I grew up in the 80s uh, in this area in the Reagan era, uh, which, you know, for a lot of people was not at all a, a tranquil, calm sort of period. Yeah. Uh, but politics were just not, I, I couldn't have told you who anyone's parents voted for. Or who they would have supported or voted for. It was just not a thing that we talked about uh, in school. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I guess maybe towards the end of high school, people got the sense that maybe I was kind of liberal because, like, I don't know, when people would say something racist, I'd be like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe you shouldn't say that. Uh, you know, and that kind of me out as, uh, um, but and, anyway, it, it was just, it, so it didn't feel that like politics really went down to that level of inflecting. The relationships between people who lived in this place. Um, and part of what's happened since Trump is that uh, there's just been this real rift in the community, you know, families <laughs> ripped apart. And this is a story that many people can tell in, in many different places. Uh, and so it's just kind of polarized um, the society. And it's really asymmetrical the way that this has worked, right? I mean, the Democratic Party. If you look at their Facebook page in this county I grew up in, it's all very just normal stuff. Come to our fish fry and here's our, you know, here are people who are running for office. And then you look at the Republican page and it's like, this is how the Democrat Nazi party wants to put you in a gulag for, you know, doing this. And it's like, whoa. And then the, in the comments, people are like, yep, I've got my gun. I'm ready to go. You know, the, it's like, holy crap. <laughs> you know, these are... Um, these are very different political cultures um, along along the lines of these two parties. And so one of the things that I'm often interested in is the way that institutions, whether they be media institutions or political institutions, not just reflect uh, what's out there in the world, but also have a a shaping effect, that they signal to people how it is they should be in the world, right? Uh, And so in that sense, that to me is what's concerning about the direction the Republican Party, as an institution and as a political culture, has gone, is that it, uh, and and that Trump, as a as a public figure, um, to me, what he's done is he's given people permission to kind of be their worst, angriest self, um, especially in 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 terms of their interactions with people who they've known their whole lives. You know, I there are there were people who I went to school with for. 12 years who knew me incredibly well, you know, who know who, their family has known my family for generations. And over the 2016 election, they just blocked me, just cut completely cut ties, right, with me and other people as well, not just me. Um, and it was, it was not a two way street. It was very much a one way street where, you know, myself and other folks were trying to be kind of civil about it and engage in dialogue. And the response was just angry rejection. Um, and the, that somehow those of us who disagreed with Trump's politics were, you know, hated America and wanted to destroy the country and so on and so forth. I mean, it's not unprecedented, um, but it, it feels new in my lived experience, right? Uh, someone who grew up in that place.
0: Shall we get into the main event, which is Walter Huss, the guy whom you have dedicated a significant part of your work and life, or you are sort of, like, you know. You are committed to to dedicating more of, of your life um, over the however long it will take you to, to, to write this book about him. I'm going to give listeners just some basics, but we'll 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 fill out the picture. So, um, this guy Walter Huss, was born in 1918. He died in 2006. He was one of Oregon's leading right wing well activists, I guess you know from sort of the late 50s all the way into the early 2000s so for a very very long time. And when we say right-wing, I mean, he was hanging out with some proper neo-Nazis and had some connections to uh, to domestic terrorist groups. That's what we're talking about here, right? Not someone who was just a little very conservative. Um, He took over, and and this is interesting, he took over as the head of the Oregon GOP in 1978, although not for very long, I believe we'll talk about that. And again, he remained a leading far-right activist into the 2000s. And yet, if I'm not mistaken, he's a relatively obscure figure. Like he he hasn't uh gotten much like national attention. And I believe he's also not exactly super well known in Oregon, I don't think. He doesn't even have a Wikipedia entry. So my first question is: how did you come to write about this guy? Like how did you quote unquote meet him? I mean, meet him as in I don't think you've ever actually met him, but like meet him as in come across this person and decided, oh, yeah, there's something there. I'm going to write about this guy. How did that happen?
1: So uh, in 2019, 2020, uh, I decided I wanted to teach a course on the history of the far right um, that would be kind of a research-based course. Mm -hmm. And we have access to a database that our library has purchased, which has a huge cache of material, primary source material. And so I thought, oh, wouldn't it be great if I could find an Oregon connection? So I started doing searches in the database looking to see if there were any kind of far right groups in Oregon where there was a, a cache of primary source material. And I stumbled upon this thing called the Freedom Center in Portland uh, that was run by Walter Huss. And there was about 150 pages of pamphlet, little leaflets he produced, um, a, a newspaper that he produced for a while, a uh, kind of monthly newspaper. And so I thought, oh, this is great. And so I started Googling around, like, oh, Walter Huss. Like, who's he? And then I realized, like, nobody knows who he is. (laughs) Like, there's just nothing there. You know, nothing was written about him. Um, And so, and I asked colleagues of mine, uh, hey, have you heard of this guy? Like, people who are experts on politics, experts on the history of of conservatism, and they blank look. Like, nope, never heard of him. Never heard of the guy. And so I thought, well, this is perfect, right, Uh, for historian, to find someone who seems significant. And so COVID enters this story (laughs) because this was all happening right in the midst of COVID. And so I could not get access to the archive. And there are 57 boxes of his papers that are held at the University of Oregon. And so, but the University of Oregon was closed to outside researchers. And so all I knew was, well, there's this huge cache of stuff just sitting there waiting for me to look at, but I cannot look at it. And so I read everything I possibly could, every newspaper article ever written about him, uh, et cetera, tried to track down in all the corners of the interwebs, you know, where things might be found. And I pretty much exhausted everything. And the picture that I had of him was that he was probably a pretty, you know, conservative guy, but I didn't, I I didn't necessarily like see him as a Christian nationalist or as a white nationalist or as a, let alone a neo-Nazi or a kind of posse comitatus type there were little glimmers of inklings that he might be like that and i noticed in his papers there were two folders that were labeled jews
0: (laughs) that is very clearly a a somewhat ominous sign it it could be but i mean you know he was trained as a minister okay it it could be that
1: he just had a kind of theological interest and plausible
0: deniability
1: okay right this is not well and this is where like i came at this from a hermeneutic of of generosity if you look back at, like, my early statements about him on, on Twitter, I, I'm not sure. Like, I get weird vibes, and I have the sense that maybe there's something going on there, but, but I don't know. I don't have the evidence. And so once I got into the archives, and the first thing I opened when I was able to get access to the archives, finally, after waiting for months, um, I opened up the Jews folders, and, indeed, it was just the worst like it was the greatest hits of kind of, you know, neo-Nazi anti-Semitism from the last century uh, of American history. It was Holocaust denial and just brutal kind of fascist, um, anti-Semitic stuff, which then I came to realize was not just a kind of side little hobby that he had, but was actually kind of the organizing principle, um, of his politics and, and of his worldview, um, that connected to his anti-communism. So he, he, if, if you asked him, he would have said, "I am an anti-communist. I am opposed to communism." And to him, what that meant was he was opposed to the Jews, who are responsible for communism. So to him, there was no distinction between the international communist conspiracy and the, and the what he saw as the international Jewish conspiracy.
0: That is something we'll have to unpack more, sort of in, in detail, right? This sort of the intellectual landscape in, in his in his head. Um, before we get to that, I'm interested in. What was the life of Walter Huss like, as in like, what was his day job and and what did he do all day? And like, what, like, what was his social life like? Who is this guy as a person to the extent we can even grasp that?
1: Yeah. So others would have described him as a very Christian, devout man, right? Okay. Creaturely demeanor about himself. He started a couple Christian private schools in the late fifties and early sixties that didn't quite work out, and I don't know why. Um, and then he basically was a full time professional political activist. I, I see. I, I think he made money, um, and he never made much. I mean, that he, he and his wife were poor their whole lives. Um, he worked you know, 12 hours a day or more, it seems, always living on the edge of bankruptcy. He had no family money. Um, And so he was very, he he really was this kind of populist, you know, working class, uh, religious conservative. And he was not a grifter, right? This was not an act. It was real. Like he he really believed this. Uh, I found no evidence that there's a kind of gap between like what he said he believed (laughs) and what he actually was. uh, th- this was very much a calling for him. Um, and he very much believed that there was this horrible conspiracy that had worked its way into um, public schools, into academia, into the media, um, into all these different aspects of American life. And that he and a tiny saving remnant of other people like him accurately perceived it, right? And because they accurately perceived it and were trying to defeat it, they, of course, were being constantly attacked and victimized by the media, by all of these other organizations that were trying to undermine him. And so he lived his life at this kind of high pitch of drama, right, where he just, around every corner, there was a communist who was ready to assassinate him, right, because he had caught them for what it was they were doing. Um, So he was a deeply paranoid um, person and a deeply kind of resentful and angry person.
0: Yeah. I mean, if the if you're convinced the stakes are that high, then right. I guess you don't just go on vacation for three weeks and don't think about your job, right? That's just not how you roll.
1: And it really was. I mean, he he's like the energizer bunny of like far right radicalism. I mean, he just never, he never stopped. I mean, he ran for office like t- at least 12 times. And wow. never even came close, like never even came within, like, never <laughs> got more than 30% of the vote, I think, even in a primary, but that didn't stop him. And in 1998, at the age of 80, his wife is like ailing and he's like, you know what? I think I need to run for governor. And so wow. he just needs to run for governor in 1998. And he's traveling all at the age of 80. He's getting in his car, his old beat up car that's like falling apart um one of the things that are in his archives are um rebate coupons for for motor oil for a dollar 50 that he would fill out right and so there're definitely these even though he's like he's he's a, he's a someone whose politics i revile um and he's you know i'm jewish i mean he would have hated me right he would have seen me as as the enemy um but, but there are these little moments in his archive where you can see that, you know, his, his resentment of the kind of wealthy, polished Republicans who ran Oregon the Oregon Republican Party was very real and was not made up.
0: Interesting, uh, yeah.
1: And, and he was right to think that the establishment Republicans in Oregon regarded him as white trash, right? That's how they would have regarded him. Um, he was not wrong um, in his perception that people looked down on him. Now, you know, I, they looked down on him because he believed completely like hateful, batshit, crazy things. Like, that's why they looked down on him. Um, but, uh, you know, t- to him, it was all sort of filtered through his own sense of his own margin, the marginal position that he occupied in sort of society and politics, alongside this complete sense of righteousness. Yeah. He really did see the world as it really was and it's important for him, essential for him as someone who wants to serve God and who believes in freedom and who believes in America to kind of get the word out. Right? Uh,
0: that is, I mean, so I'm getting a very clear picture of what he thought the, the problem was and who the enemy was. What was his vision for the country? Like if he had gotten his way... Like we're making Walter Haas president and he has, I don't know, the necessary majorities to do whatever he wants. Like what, what is it he wanted to do? Like in, in his ideal America, what would that have looked like?
1: Yeah. I mean, it was kind of this, um, you know, incredibly small government kind of wild West, um, world of kind of white patriarchal dominance, Yeah. Uh, I don't think he ever thought through the implications of his kind of white nationalist politics. He There were moments where he advocated for or agreed with people who called for people of African descent to be sent back to Africa.
0: Okay. Um,
1: I mean, that was such a kind of far-fetched and ludicrous mm-hmm. idea. Um, he never worked out the plans of how that yeah, would actually yeah. Um, he was, uh, he wanted to completely shut down all immigration from non-white countries. He believed in absolute gun rights, you know, second amendment. He was a second amendment absolutist 15 years before the NRA ever got there. Right. <laughs> uh, NRA gets there in 1977 yeah. while us was there in the early 1960s. Um, he believed in what he called free enterprise. Um, uh, Larry Glickman has a great book about the whole history of that concept of free enterprise. And, um. Uh, so to him it was this world in which individuals went about their own economic business however they wanted without the government and unions
0: individuals who looked like him and believed the same stuff like him they, they get to do ex- get to experience that sort of freedom
1: right now one of the ironies is that the way he mostly made his money in the 1980s was by participating in multi-level marketing schemes otherwise known as pyramid schemes (laughs) 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 and uh so that's a part of the story i don't want to go into it in too much detail but um he he spent half of his life getting ripped off by people like the DeVos family and the simplot family in idaho who ran multi-level marketing schemes that sucked money out of Walter Huss's pockets and put it into theirs. But then Walter Huss turned around and set up several multi-level marketing schemes himself, which then sucked money out of the pocket of various church going, conservative white people in Oregon who trusted him, uh, and who then bought into his multi-level marketing schemes and then got ripped off by him. So it's, so his vision of free enterprise, it's hard to distinguish that from a pyramid scheme, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, like a lot of things, it doesn't all make a ton of sense. Um, but he had a kind of n- nostalgic, bucolic view, right, mm-hmm. of what America supposedly used to be like—of yeah. just rugged individualists living their lives freely, um, where you know women were women and men were men, and children obeyed their parents, uh, and everybody went to church. And everybody listened to what their minister had to say. There was no abortion. There was no feminism. You know, there were no LGBTQ people, right? All, all, it was, it was this kind of fantasy world of a kind of white Christian utopia that very much tapped into, uh, you know, the, the founding ideals of the state of Oregon from the 19th century, um, but which he very much kind of kept alive in a new, uh, kind of updated form in the 1960s, 70s,
0: 80s. So, um, I believe, if if I understand correctly, he would have always talked about the communist conspiracy. They're all communists, whatever. And mm-hmm. then, not at all surprising, if we look at what's at the heart of this, it's, it's sort of an anti-Semitic uh, sort of conspiracy theory, right? Because behind the the attempted communist takeover of the world is sort of the you know the, the Jewish conspiracy. Mm-hmm. How does that sort of relate to? Anti black, anti brown racism. Um, so I believe you said earlier, like it was the anti Semitism was sort of the organizing principle of his political worldview, of, of his politics. I'm just assuming that he also wasn't particularly fond of black people or brown people, uh, certainly not if they dared to speak up. Um, so how does that all tie together for him?
1: Right. So to use the example of Martin Luther King Jr., the only folders that are thicker than the Jews folders are the MLK (laughs) Jr. folders. And uh, the MLK Jr. folders are filled with what he considered to be evidence that MLK was just a pawn being used by the Jews to undermine white Americans. And so What's underneath that is this idea that in his world, black people were intellectually inferior, inherently inferior, um, and therefore black people should just occupy this place of subservience and second-class citizenship. And that would be the natural, normal way for the world to be organized. But Jews, because they are crafty and smart, but aren't physically strong like black people, that the smart Savvy Jews manipulate the physically strong Black Americans to rise up against the white Americans, who normally would be able to win uh, because they are both stronger and smarter, as perceived by Walter Huss. So the, the only thing that can explain why Black people are unhappy in the 1960s and are seeming to be rising up has to be that the Jews are behind it right? Because what possible reason could a black person in America in the 1960s have for being discontent as Walter Huss sees it? Yeah, And also black people presumably don't have the political and intellectual capacity to organize themselves to engage in collective resistance. Therefore, in Walter Huss's mind, the only thing that could possibly explain this would be the communists slash Jews who are pulling the strings behind this entire thing.
0: Yeah. It, it's probably also just important to note for people who may not be aware that if people on the right say communism in the 50s, 60s, whenever, they're not talking about political ideology that would be recognizable as communist to anyone who like studies communism or whatever. I did, I'm guessing many people will have seen uh, photos of people protesting the desegregation of schools and they're holding up signs that says like desegregation is communism. If you look at this as, any sort of political theory, whatever, it makes no sense. But it, it everything that threatens traditional hierarchies, every mm-hmm. every attempt at leveling traditional hierarchies of race, gender, religion, is derided as communism. It would have made a lot more sense to the right-wing collective imaginary at that time to call just all of this stuff communism. Once you get to the, no, there's like a, there's a right kind of Order the way America should be this sort of white Christian patriarchal thing, and these people want to level that, and they want to level those the natural order, they, all these hierarchies. So that's that's communism, right? Um, so it, it kind of makes it kind of makes more sense in in, in that way. So uh, th- the last question maybe is specifically on that sort of intellectual uh, landscape um, or the ideological landscape. Um, what happens to Huss's anti communism or his broader worldview after the end of the Cold War? He is still, he still experiences. Experiences the the 90s, uh, the downfall of the Soviet Union. There's there's been a lot of attention recently to that sort of post Cold War moment and what happens on the right in the early 90s. There's of course yet uh, 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 lately Nicole Hammers great book Partisans. Um, mm-hmm. What happens to Huss's outlook on the world? Are there any significant changes in terms of ideas and sort of the communist uh, conspiracy evolving? Right. So I mean, he's a perfect example of something that
1: uh, Nikki Hammer describes in her book, which are the folks on the right who were cool with Reagan and then not cool with George H.W. Bush, and basically became really alienated from the Republican Party in the 90s and the aughts. And Huss is a perfect example of that. So when the Berlin Wall fell, Huss just moved away from the international communist conspiracy. And by the way, he was never all that interested in international affairs. I mean, he followed it a little bit. He was mostly interested in in the communists who were like running city hall in Portland. He thought, or the communists who were the president of the University of Oregon, or the communists who was you know whatever, so or the communists who were in charge of the you know um, LGBTQ center in his neighborhood, right? Those were the communists, yeah, yeah, to his mind, right? Uh, who were the real problem? Um, and so to him, he just moved from talking about communism to talking about the new world order, right? Um, and so. He was a big fan of pat robertson right who wrote a book the new world order who was also a preacher Um, uh, huss had appeared on pat robertson's 700 club in 1979 when he was the chair of the the republican party so so it it just shifted to a focus on you know globalists and and you know scare quotes and the new world order and the trilateral commission Um, and so and so on so so huss became a a, a real fan of uh pat buchanan's in the of course yeah uh, there are letters in his archive writing to Buchanan's campaign asking how he can get involved. Uh, he was a fan of David Duke in 1989 and 1990. Um, he, there's this one hilarious letter where he offers David Duke dating advice. Um, oh, uh, I, I shouldn't minimize it by saying it's hilarious because it's, I mean, these are awful racist people, but it is just kind of absurd, right? There's a, the kind of absurdity uh, about, uh, about this. And, and Walter Huss offered this dating advice because he really wanted David Duke to succeed. And he was worried that, you know, women um, in his world being the sorts who can take a great man down, um, that David Duke might fall prey uh, to that um so so, so it, it just moved into new realms of kind of far-right conspiratorial stuff uh, Bogue Wrightitz who was a, a kind of prominent figure in the 90s who was a kind of far-right uh, prepper guy survivalist. And so uh, Bo Grites came through, and Walter Huss took hit several multi-week seminars with Bo Greitz, learning how to survive the apocalypse. Oh wow! He taped some of these seminars, and those tapes are in his archive. So I have these long tapes of you know listening to Bo Grites go on and on. Um, and this is when Walter Huss would have been in his mid seventies, he was learning how to shoot a gun. He was learning how to bulletproof his house. Uh, he was learning how to prepare himself for the coming, you know, new world order, black helicopter apocalypse that he was sure was right around the corner.
0: The man was committed. I mean, you know, you have to, you have to give him that, right? He, he right. remained, he remained committed. Um, it, it wasn't a bit, it,
1: it was certainly no. not a bit. I mean, he was, he was, he was fully bought into it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I want to talk a little bit about where someone like Huss would get his information from, his ideas, and how he would communicate his ideas about the world to the world. About the sort of far-right media landscape of the 60s, 70s, maybe 80s. Because that's not something a lot of people know about. I mean, I think for that time period, we often talk about... Something like the National Review being founded in the mid in the mid fifties, and we pay attention to conservative intellectuals, that sort of thing. And then we get to the nineties, of course, and then we have right wing talk radio and Fox News and all that. So we, we 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 do absolutely pay a lot of attention to that. But but you describe this sort of um, right wing media landscape of the sixties and seventies um, that again Walter Huss was very much involved in, know it was very important for him. As this is a direct quote, I believe it's from your Substack. As a, quote, a key seedbed of the political culture of today's GOP, or maybe it's from one of the Twitter threads, but but it, it is a quote, um, and I I I find that very important. And maybe we should talk about this a little bit. What what is what is this sort of far right media landscape of the '60s and '70s?
1: Right. Yeah, no, that's been a really important part of the story. And it, to me, it connects my earlier work on the 1790s, where I was really interested in these newspapers, these kind of experimental uh-huh. democratic newspapers that were kind of a seedbed for a new kind of egalitarian democratic political culture in the Jeffersonian era. And then today, you know, we're all very attuned now to, to the way that this far right ecosystem, you know, sustains, the MAGA movement, right, and basically hermetically seals them off from what the rest of us might perceive to be, you know, empirical reality, like about who won the election, for example, or climate change, whatever it might be. Um, and so, Huss in the sixties, seventies, and eighties inhabited a world that was very much kind of hermetically sealed off from the mainstream media. So, for example, I found no clippings from National Review in his. 57 boxes of archival material he did not yeah occasionally bill buckley shows up but like uh but as a pretty marginal figure yeah so um walter huss the primary things that he read were um american opinion which was the john birch society's uh publication Um, but even more important than that was the spotlight Uh, which was published by the Liberty Lobby. At the time, the spotlight kind of framed itself as just kind of a, they called themselves a populist, um, and it was kind of a conspiracy theory um, newspaper. Later, it came out that the person publishing this was Willis Carto, who oh. was a who was a neo-Nazi, right? Um, and it was affiliated with Holocaust denial and so on. And the spotlight was widely um, published and, and disseminated. There were also a ton of local kind of far-right newspapers that Huss received from Southern California, uh, in Oregon. There were several kind of these small startup. Independent papers that were incredibly far right that he has copies of in his um, in his files. There were other people like uh, McBurney, this guy McBurney, who published a ton of stuff. Uh, Walter Huss read the Larouche, Lyndon Larouche materials, and what well, Huss had an AM radio show in the nineteen sixties mm. um, and listened to a lot of kind of AM radio. Um, the Liberty Lobby had a chain of a several hundred. Um, stations that carried their kind of neo-Nazi um, radio shows. There was almost nowhere in the country where you couldn't hear them if you wanted to you wanted to tune into them. So to me, what's interesting about this is how to him, these alternate sources of information, which were quite robust, right? I mean, it wasn't a, it wasn't a deficit of information. It was a surfeit of bad information, yeah. <laughs> of inaccurate yeah. information but which all fit together in a kind of coherent picture for him yeah. um that seemed to explain the world to him. And so if you were inside that world you could sort of speak your own kind of private language in much the way that much of mega political culture today is kind of its own private language. If you were to turn on AM radio, for example, which I do sometimes, you hear people telling these stories and talking about stuff and you're like, what the heck? Like, what are they talking about? Like some terrible thing that happened in Michigan. Who is this? And then you go, I go home and Google it. And it's like, oh, This is this kind of like wacky, made up story, um, you know, Project Veritas or somewhere, right? But this absorbs an hour of conversation on this AM radio station, and people are just apoplectic about it. And this is the end of the Republic as we know it, and so on and so forth. And this can flourish, this this kind of alternate subculture um, can flourish as long as there's no external (laughs) checks on it. And as long as the people who inhabit that world, uh, are willing to just buy into the starting premises right, of, of that, of that world. Um, and so for, for us, I mean, he, one thing I will say is that he did read the Oregonian. He was a religious reader of the Portland Oregonian, and he kept lots of clippings from it frequently. Uh, he was very angry about what he read in the Oregonian and he refused to speak to the press because as he understood it, the Jews controlled the media. And so of course they would never be fair to him because they understood that he was a threat to their power. But he did have that one kind of foothold in, you know, kind of mainstream media world, which I think enabled him to kind of cross back and forth across that boundary of his own kind of private world in which the Jews are controlling everything, to be able to speak to maybe still quite conservative Republicans, but who didn't inhabit that more extreme world that that he did. And so he he was smart enough to recognize that um, you know, that he needed to kind of code switch a bit um whenever he was talking with folks who weren't completely bought into his kind of really extreme version of politics.
0: This strikes me as really important because there is a not much talked about sort of infrastructure, he would also say a swamp of Mm -hmm. this sort of far right media I- information environment that that very much helps sustain that sort of subculture right below the surface because i mean if these people don't have that then that makes a difference right that seems very important to me we should probably talk a little bit about okay so we have this guy he's pretty extreme he's not just some dude in some like crazy corner of the world and who cares he gets to the point where he is having some impact, right? He's, he's having some political impact. And mm-hmm. and to the point where he is helping push the Org- Oregon GOP to the right. And we should talk a little bit about how he managed to do that. Maybe start with how he managed to become the chair of the Oregon Republican Party in the summer of 1978. Now, there was some national attention for when that happened. I found an article in the Washington Post yeah. from October 6, 1978, You will probably know it. Um, it, it, It's titled Fundamentalist Cleric Altering Oregon's GOP. Um, So here's the explanation the Washington Post offered for what had just happened in faraway Oregon. And then you'll have to tell me if that's... I don't know plausible at all or whatever. So I'll 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 quote from that um, Washington Post article. This is from October, so it 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 took a minute for the news to reach Mm -hmm. (laughs) the other side of the country. Last August, in the in the little town of Bend, a 60-year-old fundamentalist minister who believes in Christian candidates and fears uh, an imminent communist world -world takeover that sounds sounds about right became Mm -hmm. chairman of the Oregon Republican Party. Today, Walter Huss, who calls himself uh, himself a quote servant of people, and his organizational Minded wife Rosa Lee are busy transforming this, this state's once progressive GOP into an instrument that reflects their own political perception. My victory signals a new direction for the Republican Party," said Huss. The club uh, set is the club set is trying to cling to their vestiges. They hate to admit they've lost. Okay, you'll have to tell me what that is. The club set. Um, Back to what the Washington Post has to say, whether Huss is the wave of the GOP future or, as his critics believe, the voice of a hate-filled past, his victory represents one of the striking triumphs of evangelical religious participation in organizational politics. Now, here comes the explanation for how he managed to do this. Like the communists of the 30s or the John Birchers of the 60s who took over organizations by outworking their opponents, Huss and his followers simply beat the politicians at their own game. They went to the meetings, says Travis Cross, one-time press secretary to former Republican Governor Tom McCall. They stayed awake. They stayed at the meetings after others went home. In other words, they did it legally. Okay, so that is interesting, right? They The, the explanation the Washington Post offers here is this guy and his followers, they just outworked the establishment and sort of the fair weather Republicans and all that. What do you say to that? Does that, does that make sense what, what they're saying here?
1: Yeah. That's it, I mean, tra- so Travis Cross was a graduate of Willamette, which is where I teach. Um, and he also worked for Mark Hatfield. who was a graduate of where I teach. Um, their papers are all here in our library and I've read a good number of them. So in hindsight, they accurately perceived what was happening. And, and what happened was starting in 1968, Oregon has 65 counties, I believe, and he would travel to every single county and he would get people in the churches where he had connections. He would get people to run for precinct captain for the Republican party. And his point was like, look, nobody ever runs for these things. You can win with two votes, right? So like, it doesn't matter. Just put your name on the ballot and then you get elected, come to the state convention and vote for me Mm. as chair. And the establishment that he was angry about uh, when he calls them the club set, Um, I believe what he's referring to there is the Arlington Club, Mm. the Arlington Club in Portland, which was this kind of all white, all male, all Christian uh, club of very conservative, uh, kind of wealthy uh, white men. Uh, Our current mayor of Portland is the grandson of one of the members of the Arlington Club. Oh, interesting. um, Even though he's a Democrat. Um, And... Uh, so these these men who, at the Arlington Club, which was this ex- exclusive club for, for Portland's economic elite, or Oregon's economic elite, um, they were the kind of de facto uh, kingmakers in the Republican Party. If you wanted to run as a Republican, you had to kind of get the nod from them, and then they would give you the money to kind of run your uh, election. And so they had supported people like Mark Hatfield, who was a, a moderate Republican senator, Packwood, who was also a moderate Republican senator, and both Packwood and Hatfield served from the mid-60s into the mid-90s, right? So for the entirety of the time that Huss is there, Oregon's two Republican senators are both kind of known as moderates on on issues. And so Huss just was apoplectic about this, right? And in part, this is another little interesting wrinkle to it, the guy in charge of the Arlington Club for a lot of the time is a guy named Ernie Swigert, who owns a huge corporation called the Heister Corporation in Oregon. Ernie Swigert was a founding member of the John Birch Society. Oh. Okay. So so Huss like looks at, at Ernie Swigert and he says, Dude, like we're on the same page here. Like yeah. you're in the John Birch Society. I'm like fighting communism, but like you don't give me the time of day, right? And instead, you give all your money and all your support to these country club type. Republicans, Hatfield and Packwood. Um, and Swigert and the Arlington clubs thinking on this, as I understand it, was that, well, Huss, we're not going to support you because you won't get elected. Right? Like what good does it do us to get a Republic, you know, to nominate a Republican we agree with who is such a kook that no one will vote for him. So we will support Republicans who can get elected, who are these more moderate Republicans. And so, what sh- What shifts in the party then uh, is that Huss leads the, this insurgency and he goes to the state convention every two years, 1968, 1970, 1972, 1974, 1976. And every time he tries to get enough votes to win the chairmanship and he gets closer and closer and closer. And then finally in 1978, he does it. Um, and, and it really was. So what Travis Cross said, that he did it, You know, legally, it is absolutely true. Um, And the establishment basically couldn't care less about the Oregon Republican Party as an organization. By 1978, Hatfield and Packwood had their own organizations. They were fine. They didn't need the Oregon Republican Party to get reelected. They had a good standing with the public. um, And so they just basically didn't care enough to devote the time and energy um, to staving off what was this kind of grassroots insurgency in the Oregon Republican Party. So that's uh, that's basically how it happened. I have
0: time. to say, if we zoom out, there's some parallels here too, you know, on the national level, like maybe so, some leading national figures, someone mm-hmm. like Barack Obama, maybe not paying enough attention to like local state politics, party mm-hmm. building, whatever, or or to the way that Republicans in, say, After 2010, identified, Mm -hmm. hey, we can at the local and at the state level, these state legislatures, these races are—you don't need a lot of people and you don't need a lot of money to get into that, right? So we're going to target those lower, quote-unquote, lower levels, Mm -hmm. and then we'll build from there. There's there's some echoes here.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I mean, Steve Bannon, this is his entire project, right, right? is to get people to run for precinct captain, Um, and he's been very about this and the, the moms for liberty group and, and a lot of the anti-crt parents groups are you know running for school board yes and they're you know attending local school board meetings and trying to disrupt them and yeah. so this this idea that like you've got to build power and 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 the, the attractiveness of doing it at the local level is that it's incredibly yes. cheap <laughs> it doesn't yeah. take much money um and you don't need that many people right? And, and Huss was very explicit about this. He's like, look, we are a minority of people, but I don't care about that because we're right. And so what we need to do is just get active and take over this institution of the Republican party. And then we can use our power and influence to turn the state in the direction that it needs to go. Because of course we know, and everybody who disagrees with us, is, you know either a communist or duped by the communists. Yeah. But then once we take over power, and then people will see the truth and the scales will fall from their eyes. And then we, we will create our utopia. Um, so, um, so in that sense, I think Bannon is a more just like cynical power player. <laughs> it's like, I don't care. We will just dominate you. Um, and, and for Huss, it, it was, a this sense of you know, creating a network of the right sorts of people. So when he wants Christian candidates to run, and, and this was the comment that drew a lot of ire, um, and, and, People like Mark Hatfield criticized him for this. Vic Attia, who was the sitting or Republican governor, yeah. criticized him for this. Because they saw behind that was code, right, for not Jewish, right? Um, and that is indeed what Huss completely meant. Yeah. <laughs> we now know that is completely what he meant. But he, of course... Ponded off as just well, I you know I just mean people who have good morals, you know, uh, people who are virtuous and morally responsible. That's all I mean by that. People who knew Hus more up close understood that he did not believe in religious pluralism and he did not believe in multiracial democracy.
0: Yeah, right? it's, I mean this is this strikes me as really crucially important. The way American the American political system or American democracy is set up opens a lot of avenues for that kind of insurgency, right? It it The combination of an incredible amount of elections and sort of political positions at, at all levels, mm-hmm. plus weak parties that mm-hmm. are not necessarily um, capable of just h- holding the line against these sort of more radical figures. Yeah. If you have both of that, there's just a lot of openings for these kinds of s- things to happen. I mean, there's this whole political scientist Julia Azari said this thing, you know, one of the key problems in this country is we have strong partisanship, but weak parties, right? And then the story that you're telling is that what we're seeing with school boards and all that. But we also have all these positions that these people can run for, and they don't need a lot of support in terms of numbers. They never need any anywhere close to, like, what you would call a majority of whatever. You just need a few hyper... I don't know, organized and 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 riled up people, riled up enough um, to 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 go there and, and be there, and and then you can again like outwork, right, outwork the, the others. Mm-hmm. From a German perspective, it's 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 very different than the German system, where again like we don't school boards, there's there's no election for that, there's no opening for an insurgency because we don't mm-hmm. elect those positions, right? And I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying it opens avenues, right? So we should probably transition into sort of the last part of our conversation, which is, to what extent is this an American story? To what extent is it a case study for a much larger development beyond Oregon, right? So what are sort of Oregonian peculiarities about all of this? Maybe, maybe we can start with this. Like, what is your sense, like, is this happening around the country Are there others of Walter Huss-like figures, versions and variants of this story happening around the country? Or is it still at the time in the 60s and 70s more of an outlier, but maybe a harbinger of things to come, but later?
1: Right, right. No, that's a great question. And the way I've been thinking about it is that his movement was sort of middle out rather than top down or bottom up Uh um, in the sense that it was simultaneously very local, you know, like, like county level chairs of Republican party, Mm. uh, it was statewide in the sense that they had their eyes on taking over the state Oregon Republican party and eventually did, but Huss himself was in touch with and coordinating with other kind of far-right, especially Christian, um, evangelicals in the 1970s. Um, and the nature of those connections, um, were often went through, um, media so there was a shared kind of uh world of media that people inhabited uh they were reading the same information etc um uh they were listening to the same radio shows but also they were forging connections so that for example us had a lot of connections in arizona Um, And so he traveled to Arizona a few times and worked together with um, kind of anti-tax activists in Arizona in the 1980s and 1990s um, so that he had connections to these people who occupied a similar position that he did, which was that it was just sort of citizen activists who had relationships with and ties to people in positions of you know elected power and other forms of power um, where they were trying to just marshal the kind of grassroots energy of letter writers people who would go to public meetings etc um to put pressure on people in positions higher up in power and so in that sense it it is i mean th- there are many peculiarities about Oregon in the sense of the, the demography of Oregon when Huss is at work was quite distinct and different from a lot of places in the u.s and that was an an overwhelmingly white state right Um, and so the 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 form that kind of that sort of white identity politics could take in oregon was quite different than the way it would take shape in say south carolina right or virginia um or on in in a northeast city um so that you know black people were about two percent of the population when Huss is talking about you know, the threat of civil rights and the threat of like, black people, um, most of the people he was speaking to didn't know any <laughs> African-Americans, never actually encountered them at work or it, in their daily lives, et cetera. And so it was very much an abstraction. Similarly with Jews, you know, there are very few Jews in Oregon. Um, and so in that sense, he could weave all kinds of just wacky stories, right? And very few people had that experience of like, well, hey, wait a minute, like I know that person and like they're Jewish and they seem like normal American like me, you know? Um, So that Oregon, I think, especially rural Oregon was a particularly receptive place for that kind of politics of of alienation. Um, And then when you build into it, the kind of economic struggles that folks were facing in the midst of deindustrialization and the kind of decline of the timber industry, um, which sustained a lot of rural Oregon, um, and ranching. Um, so, th- so that there were, there were folks who were experiencing change, economic change as loss, right. And as hardship. Um, and then meanwhile, you have the rise of Portland as a more liberal, uh, LGBTQ friendly, uh, place. Um, and you, and so you build in this animosity between, you know, Portland liberals, and Eugene, which is where the University of Oregon is, where all the hippies are, right? So these two places that are seen as these, you know, locuses of left-wing extremism, and then the rest of the state where, you know, the real Oregonians live, um, you know, and not these kind of strange foreign types of people who inhabit these these liberal enclaves. Um, And we are still living with that. I mean, that dynamic is very much in play now with the the whole you know, s- secede and connect up with Idaho movement that has become big. Um, so, so this maps on in, in Oregon, in particular, the way that this kind of conservative-liberal divide maps onto geography um, is kind of distinct, but but you know not necessarily all that different than say Wisconsin, yeah, you know, where you have rural Wisconsin and then you have Madison and Milwaukee. Uh, you know, the difference being that in in Oregon, there's no city that reactionary white people think of as the place where black people live,
0: right. I see, yeah, but the overall, yeah. I mean, the overall, of there's it is kind of not too dissimilar to the overall urban rural kind of right. fault line that defines the American political conflict so much, right. What we're reflecting on right now is basically the question of, what significance do we want to sort of assign the, the radicalization of the Oregon GOP in that broader story of the right-wing radicalization of the Republican Party in general, right? And, and, and sort of talking about what is the place of the story that you are looking at in a prehistory, maybe, of yeah. sort of the rise of Trumpism, that sort of thing, right? And there's just a big, big Debate going on. And it's not just amongst historians, right? It's also, I think, shaping the political discourse more broadly. How should we think about the rise of Trump and Trumpism? Is it just an accident, a a complete aberration and departure from what the Republican Party was before 2015, 16 or so? Or is Trumpism really a continuation of what had been happening on the right for much, much longer and of what, in a way, modern conservatism had, had always been? So it's, a, you know, amongst historians, we like to talk about continuities versus discontinuities anyway, but it's not, it's not just of academic interest because it's fundamentally about what is this Trumpism thing, where does it come from, and what is the right way to understand it, tackle it, hopefully defeat it. It has very much direct political and policy implications. So, you know, in a way... You could tell the story that we've talked about as a direct path from Walter Huss to Donald Trump. You could tell it as, this is what's been going on in the Republican Party on the right for many, many decades. Um, This is the trajectory they've been on. Um, It's all there. It's basically a story of William F. Buckley, but also Walter Huss in the 50s and 60s, to Nixon and Reagan, and still Walter Huss in the 70s and 80s, to Pat Buchanan and Newt Gingrich in the 90s, to Sarah Palin, to finally Donald Trump. What would you say to that like a story that would very much place Trumpism in continuity with what we've talked about
1: yeah that sounds right and and I would say you know so Hus, Huss's genealogy is from Goldwater to George Wallace yeah um, to Ronald Reagan and then after Ronald Reagan he basically gave up on the Republican Party mm. did not George HW Bush he liked Buchanan mm. right and then many of Huss's co-workers who then survived him, um, many of them left the Republican Party in the 2000s, and then they returned in 2016 when Donald Trump came, right? So these were the people who were in the Buchanan Brigades, who even earlier would have been in favor of George Wallace. Um, so so to to them, Trump was a deliverance, right? He okay. was like, oh, at last, right? And, and yes. the same way about Sarah Palin, right? It was like, finally, there's a Republican who speak in my language, right? And so, and that language, where does that language come from, right? And that language, and I, there are lots of different ways to describe what that language is. One, one term I like, which is from historian Joseph Franczak, is participatory anti-democracy. Yeah, Which uh, I think is just a marvelous phrase to conjure with, right? Because it, what it does is it, it, it invokes this notion of people getting really fired up politically right um not just like well i'm gonna vote for that guy because my taxes will be lower right which is my sense of how a lot of people in the 80s where i grew up thought about politics right um they didn't they weren't out on the streets they weren't getting enthusiastic about stuff they just you know hated the democrats because they thought they were responsible for the economic hardships that they were facing and so they voted for ronald reagan because they liked morning in america um but they weren't going to meetings they weren't reading political newsletters and, and literature etc um and so but huss was right and and his his cohort of really kind of activated Kind of far right activists, and what fired them up was the idea of trying to save and preserve their vision of a white Christian patriarchal America, right? Um, and and what gave what put the fire in their belly was this conspiratorial sense, this apocalyptic sense that it was all about to be taken away from them, right? Um, and that everybody was against them: the media, colleges, universities, everybody was against them, even most churches right were against them you know these kind of mainline protestant churches and so only they had access to this really important timeless set of truths that the founders articulated that we can find in the bible that are rooted in their nostalgic perception of their own upbringing you know somewhere um, and so that is what really gave the fire to this grassroots insurgency that Huss led And which the establishment folks in Oregon in the Republican Party just dismissed it as a bunch of, you know, working class dopes who read a bunch of stupid magazines that are filled with conspiracy theory kookiness. And nobody needs to take these people seriously because, you know, they're completely out of touch with reality. They're just backwards, vestigial, you know. people and so you know we humor them they vote for us you know occasionally i'll say something about guns that'll make them happy but they knew that these were people who were generally voting for them as republicans but they thought they were the ones driving the bus that these establishment types right um and i think what happened in 1978 when huss won the chairmanship is there was this kind of oh shit moment of like oh wait a minute we thought we were we had this all locked down and we're in control of this but maybe we're not um And then, you know, what followed from that, and I think this is another lesson that is perhaps interesting, and what I'm assuming about the politics of your audience, uh, an (laughs) uplifting story, (laughs) uh, is that the result of the far-right takeover of the Oregon Republican Party in the 1970s and 80s is that the Oregon Republican Party became electorally unviable statewide Mm. quickly, right? Mm. So the last time a, a Republican won governor of Oregon was 1982. And there was one other Republican who got elected as a senator in the 2000s. But for the most part, statewide elections in Oregon are dominated by Democrats. Um, And it's not necessarily because people love (laughs) the Democratic candidates. It's just because the Republican Party is just so far off in the woods that it's like the brand has just become so tarnished. And so this is one of the outcomes of what happened for the Oregon Republican Party because the moderates didn't. Successfully beat back this challenge right and they they were you know people like Mark Hatfield Tom McCall who was our Republican governor Bob Packwood they were very outspoken in their opposition to the politics of people like Walter Huss right they wrote op-eds so it's not as if they just put their fingers in their ear and pretended it wasn't happening yeah. uh, so they would they would write about it but they didn't do any organizing around it. <laughs> Right. Um, and so meanwhile, Walter Huss and his crew are like, well, we don't care. Say whatever you want about us. We hate you anyway. Right. And so they just kept going out and organizing. And eventually the the more moderate voices in the Republican Party just lost control um, over the political culture of the party. And at this point, it's it's very hard to see how they get it back. Right? I mean, given our system of primaries. Um, but you th- 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 the possibility for a Republican to win more than forty-two or forty-three percent of the of the vote at the state level seems like almost an impo- it's almost impossible to imagine a Republican candidate who could win a primary and then win a general election.
0: I want to say two things about this because you said it's an uplifting story. And I, I get the uplifting part. I just want to say there's also some people I think still cling to the hope that once the Republican Party realizes um, you know, they uh, have radicalized too much to the right and they're no longer going to be electorally viable, that will automatically lead to moderation. That they, That's where Oregon is a cautionary tale, right? No, it can also lead to like, they're going completely off the deep end. And then I think what's so frightening on the, the national level is that if you add the anti-democratic distortions of the American political system... Mm-hmm. where maybe 42% or so of support is just enough to even cling to power that doesn't work in Oregon but maybe if you add the supreme court or something something like the senate and the supreme court right then all of a sudden maybe that is enough and so what gives you hope in Oregon because you can see well if you do that then you're not going to you're not going to be Competitive in statewide elections, but then nationally, you remain competitive because you have these institutions and these sort of anti-democratic distortions, and, and that's what that's what makes it a at least a sort of ambivalent story for me.
1: Right. And this is where, and so the electoral college is an interesting piece in this. So like, for example, you know, what we saw in Pennsylvania with Doug Mastriano, what yeah. we saw in Michigan. So all of these previously purple states, and Oregon used to be a purple state and then ceased to be a purple state. But as, as more and more of these purple states just go heavily into the blue category because the GOP has gotten so far out of touch, um, it, the path for a, a Republican presidential candidate to 270 votes in the electoral college, narrow it even further, and so you have the situation where the Republicans probably could control the Senate pr- with 42 percent of the most popular vote, right? Um, and the Democrats, depending on what happens with gerrymandering, right, could control the House and the presidency, but the Supreme Court is still in the hands of the kind of Republican, and it's just. Uh, deadlock right i mean there's this incredible national level deadlock but but a deadlock in which you know the, the majority of the citizenry has clearly like rejected one party uh, but that doesn't matter the 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 countermajoritarian aspects of our system uh will, will still hold so yes i agree and, and then when you add into it the the willingness to use violence as a means of political change yeah. which is another part yes. of Hus- story that I think is is worth mentioning, that I have no evidence that he himself ever engaged in violence, but he corresponded on very friendly terms with with people who participated in acts of far-right domestic terrorism.
0: Not a Um, deal breaker for him. Right. This was not a deal
1: breaker. One of my favorite things I found in his archive was a letter. So the Posse Comitatus movement was a kind of sovereign citizen, far-right violent movement in Oregon and across the country in the 1970s and 80s. And um, someone told him that the FBI suspected him of being associated with the Nazi party and the posse comitatus. And so he went to his good friend, who was the head of the Posse Comitatus in Oregon, Laverne Hollenbach, and said, hey, Laverne, would you give me a letter that says I'm not a member of your group? And so Laverne Hollenbach wrote a one-sentence letter that says Walter Huss is not affiliated with the Posse Comitatus <laughs> <laughs> uh, on the Posse Comitatus letterhead. There's a, paper, there's a piece of paper in Walter Huss's archive saying that he is not a member of the Posse Comitatus, which is you know kind of maybe protesting a little.
0: That is very funny. It kind of reminds me of like post-1945, quite a few Nazis trying to get someone to write the some letter saying this guy was not a Nazi hey can you like can you maybe write me the only problem there is right uh, the Nazi party was no more so they couldn't just go to the local Nazi party and say hey can you write me a letter yeah. um, but before we end I just want to say one last thing because I found it so interesting that you use the the word Trump as a deliverance right um, that is very interesting to me because it does not necessarily um, suggest, Trump is in continuity. It doesn't necessarily mean there's a straight line. It clearly means he's not an aberration or an accident. But he can draw a Trumpism. Right, Trumpism's rise can sort of draw on um, long-standing tendencies and, and and impulses and also networks and structures and, and all that. But it's not necessarily a, a direct line, right? Because even to the point where as you described, these people on the far right, they got so fed up and frustrated at points with the Republican Party that they actually turned their back on the Republican Party. So there's no direct like, oh, they're just taken over, over, over. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe mm-hmm. there's also even a parallel here to what Kathleen Beale describes with the white power movement where they, I mean, they they were not in on Reagan or whatever because they thought, now these people are terrible and they came back with Trump because now they see, they they feel like, oh, now the doors are open to us. So basically the story here is one where, We shouldn't forget, right? These people, they've always been people whose rise has been fueled by far rights of populist energies, but they tended not to win the Republican nomination or at least lose in the general, right? So you Goldwater in 64 and George Wallace in 68, and then David Duke, whatever, almost becoming Senator in Louisiana in 1990, and then Pat Buchanan running for president in 92. But all of these people, they didn't win, right? But then Trump did. Trump did, right? And so... I think there is, again, like if if we're thinking about continuities, discontinuities, it's not a simple story of just a continuous, direct path. It's much more complicated, much more interesting than that, where we need to think about not just, "Oh, this is a clear, this has always been there, all these tendencies, but also why, yes, but it was never enough to actually take over until trump so something changed something about the circumstances something about the you know the environment in which trump finally broke through and so we we need to also talk about that right
1: yeah trump not winning in 2016 it would've been you know quite a different landscape we would have yeah. found ourselves in you know um, his victory in the electoral college in 2016 was a really significant Historical turning point, uh, like contingency matters, right? Those however many votes it was in those three states that spelled the difference. Um, and again, it's not as if we would be living in some you know democratic socialist paradise if Hillary Clinton had won. That is not at all yeah. what, what, what I'm saying. Likely, yeah. Uh, right. It's just that that the, the history of the right and its relationship to the Republican Party. Um, the victory of Donald Trump in 2016 was a really significant turning point in that history. And I think it still remains to be seen what's going to happen, um, you know, after that, but, but what he's, what his victory did is it emboldened and amplified a portion of that Republican coalition that had felt excluded. Um, and now they feel like they are at the center of what the party is about rather than feeling like they are the forgotten, you know, uh, marginalized portion of the Republican coalition, and so how how you rein that back in, you know, how people like uh, Mitt Romney or Lisa Murkowski or Susan Collins or you know Liz Cheney reel that back in, I, I don't know. I, I, I it's hard for me to see in the context of how weak our institutional parties are, how you do that. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, what, what lay in the future is very very unclear and we historians know better than to
0: than to predict anything although although i mean i'm guessing listeners can tell that we're probably both not exactly on the most optimistic end of the spectrum right when it comes to the 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 trajectory at least in the near future for the republican party is is, is probably not one of they're not going to tack back to the demo small democratic center within the next i don't know election cycle or so that seems highly unlikely it does seem unlikely
1: but uh, you know but uh, there is um I, mean, I, I think so for example just to use a recent uh, example you know when donald trump is calling for people to go out onto the streets yes. to defend him yes. and you know, crickets yes. and i'm following you know I, I occasionally i'd look at the facebook pages of various republican groups in oregon just to see what folks are talking about and i can tell you they are not talking about trump being arrested like <laughs> I mean, maybe they're just not talking about it on Facebook, but uh, you know, it's so different than the run-up to January sixth, right? Where that was all people were talking yes. about uh, was the stolen election and how we need to go and support President Trump and so on. Um, that that is not the way people are responding to his current legal troubles, um, and I don't know what to make of that, but that does seem to suggest the possibility that you know his magnetic hold on people's affections. Um, is connected to him being in positions of power and authority. And when he's not in a position of power and authority, uh, he's kind of dispensable. You know? Um, Yeah. uh, And and I think, though, for some people, they perceive him as the only Republican who could win, um, which I don't believe is true. Um, But I think as they see it, right, he was the guy that cracked the code. Yeah. He was the guy that, in 2016, one uh and so there's no one else who has that kind of you know magic touch that, that he has
0: yeah who knows? that is probably a good place to end maybe i mean somewhat of a slightly hopeful place to end um we you know we we went long actually which is you know just because it, it there's just so much to talk about and i i want to thank you very much for taking all the time to, to talk this through with me everyone should Read and follow Seth. I mean, just a few weeks ago, Seth finally started a subsect newsletter. It's called Rightlandia, and it's dealing with all the good stuff that we discussed here today. It is fantastic if you are interested in understanding the past and present of the American right. And whatever is going on over there, you should subscribe and you should read it. In general, you should seek out Seth's work. Follow him on social media. He is at Seth Kotler everywhere. Um, Not everywhere, but you know, on the... On the bird side and on Mastodon, um, at least. Um, I I can honestly say that Seth is among the handful of people from whom I have learned the most over the past few years, regardless of how short your list of people that you always make a conscious effort to read is. Seth should be on it. Um, He's certainly on mine. I'm very glad we had a chance to get into it here on the podcast. Seth Kotler, thank you so much for this conversation.
1: Thanks for having me, it was